Welcome back everybody to the Luke Beasley Show. I am so sorry about yesterday's program because I had major technical difficulties and was dealing with them throughout much of yesterday. I wasn't able to get a show out, so I do apologize for that. I'm still kind of dealing with the same issue, but I have a temporary fix. So hopefully um, everything will kind of come in okay on your end, sounds good, looks good, all those things, um, and hopefully we'll make up the missed show with a wonderful and important show today. Uh, on this Friday. So with that being said, let's jump into our first story. The longtime chief financial officer of the Trump organization, Alan Weisselberg, uh, both pled guilty himself to committing crimes as well as agreed to testify um, within this investigation against the Trump organization. So big stuff. That's not him agreeing to testify against Trump and about what Trump's crimes might have been. But I mean, Trump was the head of the organization. So um, him revealing crimes about what the, you know, criminal business practices were that the Trump organization was playing parts in, um, is, is really important and fascinating. So we'll read a little bit about this from CBS. Alan Weisselberg, the former longtime chief financial officer of the Trump organization, ple- pleaded guilty Thursday to 15 counts of fraud and tax evasion, acknowledging that he was part of a scheme to receive more than $1.7 million in off the books perks and compensation from former president Donald Trump's namesake firm. Weisselberg entered the plea in a Manhattan courtroom where he admitted to his crimes and agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in the criminal case against two Trump organization entities. Weisselberg was charged in July 2021 alongside the Trump organization subsidiaries that prosecutors claim took part in the scheme, which also allegedly benefited other company executives. The company has pleaded not guilty and jury selection for its trial is scheduled for October 24th. Weisselberg's deal uh, with prosecutors calls for a sentence of five months in New York's Rikers Island jail, followed by five years probation. Uh, He must also pay $1.9 million in back taxes and fines and testify under oath as a witness in the company's trial. He has not agreed to provide any new uh, any new or supplemental information about Trump or the company that bears his name, according to sources familiar uh, with the matter. So, this is interesting. Um, and he's going to actually spend time in jail, which is a big deal. We don't see too often a kind of white collar crimes be prosecuted like this. And the scheme that he got caught up in and got prosecuted for was <clears throat> getting those illegal perks from his, his company and having them pay for things that they aren't supposed to, uh, based on tax laws and stuff like that. Um, to get around paying taxes is the benefit to him. Um, but he has agreed to testify under oath as a witness against the company, um, or in the company's trial, I should say, for the prosecution, um, which should hopefully reveal some fascinating information. As it highlighted there, we don't know yet. We don't know any particular new information that he knows he has and knows he's going to share. Um, but the chief financial officer of an organization knows what fishy business is going on. Um, they had to be somewhat aware or a part of those things for them to have gone off without a hitch. And so I think uh, Alan Weisselberg, you know, besides Trump himself, is the guy who knows what was going on. And while I think um, there's kind of two conversations, just the Trump organization by itself, it's always good to hold um, people accountable, again, who tend historically not to get held accountable as often. Um, for crimes they committed, absolutely. But when talking about Trump and his um, kind of the larger arc that we've covered of him committing 
what we see as probably multiple crimes in multiple different areas. And one of those was the business world. Um, this is one more step in that direction. But honestly, <clears throat> to me, it's not the most important investigation that's going on by any means. And I think if something is going to, if you want to use the phrase, take Trump down, it should be in my mind. I mean, of course, if he committed crimes, then it should be in the business world too. But um, the one that's really, really I see as the most important is him trying to overturn the 2020 election, trying to pressure officials to do so. The Georgia call where he's calling, asking them to find 11,000 votes. That is the most important because not only is it about holding one person accountable, it's about setting a precedent um, where people don't threaten our democracy in that way and don't try to overturn the will of the will of the people in that way. And I think that will have lasting ramifications either way it goes, obviously. If he doesn't end up getting held accountable, we're going to see more leaders uh, in America attempt to do what he did. If he does get held accountable, maybe not so much, which is what we want to do. So interesting stuff. And the walls just seem to be closing in around Trump, his organization, and his allies uh, somewhat simultaneously. We were seeing so many different investigations hitting him at once, and I am here for it. Harriet Hagman is the individual who defeated Liz Cheney in the Wyoming uh, race for the Republican nomination for that House seat, the one House seat that Wyoming has. And an interesting dynamic or uh, event kind of played out recently between her and Liz Cheney. So she appeared on shot. Guys, just wait. This is so wild. I can't even tell you. So she appears on Sean Hannity. Okay. And she says, you know, Liz Cheney didn't even try to connect with me over the phone. She left a two-second voicemail where all she said was, Hi, it's Liz. Hi, Harriet, it's Liz. That was it. She didn't even try to talk to me. Well, Liz Cheney exposes her for the liar that she is. And I actually have a little bit of a larger point to make about this because when I saw this whole thing play out, it disturbed me for a reason I'll get into um, after we watch this. So this is her initial appearance on Sean Hannity's show, where she makes that claim. Let's talk about, I watched her speech last night. Um, I think she's sincere in her beliefs. Um, she's allowed to believe anything that she wants, pursue any agenda that she wants. But clearly at some point, she got out of touch with the people of Wyoming, which is why you won by such an overwhelming margin. She mentioned that she called you. I didn't hear in that sentence that she congratulated you and wished you well. How did the call go? Well, there wasn't a phone call. While I was going in and getting ready to do my acceptance speech last night and had just arrived at the watch party, she called and left a very brief two-second message on my on my cell phone. That's the extent of it. I haven't had okay, any... Y'all pay attention to what she's saying right now because we're about to listen to the voicemail. All right. Any other contact with Liz Cheney? She only made the one effort, and all she said was, hello, Harriet, and then that was the end of it. So uh, she didn't call and discuss with me any kind of concession or anything else. It was just a one phone call. I was obviously extremely so busy with family and friends. She, she just said, hello, Harriet, and then hung up? That was the end of the call. Yes, that was the, that was the only time. It was about eight fifteen last night, and I was just getting ready to go on stage with my acceptance speech, and I didn't have an opportunity to visit. With Guys, that is wild. Because then Liz Cheney goes, "Okay, if you're gonna say uh, lies about me like that, here I'll just release the voicemail recording." And so she did. 
AP's calling it. Huh. So we should go. That's what she told us. Uh, here is Liz Cheney calling. It's uh, about 8.13 on uh, Tuesday the 16th. I'm calling to concede the election uh, and uh, to uh, to congratulate you on the win. Thanks. So Harriet Hageman, is it Hageman? Hageman? Uh, she claimed that Liz Cheney didn't even attempt to connect with her over the phone and left a two-second voicemail where she says, Hi, Harriet, this is Liz. And that was it. And when Sean Hannity goes, wait, 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 are you saying? And then just repeats it back to her. She goes, yep, that was the end of the voicemail. Well, we just listened to the voicemail. Number one, she does congratulate her. She says, I'm calling to concede the election and congratulate you on your win. Um, and it's more in there. It's not a super long voicemail, but it's more than what Harriet Hageman left. So is it important oh, the nature in which Liz Cheney, you know, attempted to connect with her? No. Is it important that someone who just got the Republican nomination in a state that goes red, uh, pretty consistently blatantly lied like that yeah that is because here's what disturbs me so much about that moment you actually know and understand and can conceive of the benefits of lying in some of these big cases that we have to call out an example is the election while i think it is horrible and disastrous and damaging to lie about the results of the election to keep yourself in power you know why they're doing it it would benefit them to stay in power, right? And they're not thinking about the larger repercussions of it hurting our democracy or anything like that. They're thinking about, in the moment, I don't want to get taken out of power, so I'm going to lie about the election. Okay, so that lie makes, quote-unquote, sense. Why she would just randomly feel the need to lie about the nature of Liz Cheney's concession call to her makes no sense. It's so minuscule. No one cares. I mean, maybe you slightly make Liz Cheney look less, uh, you know, polite but is that really worth completely lying like that for no reason at all and i think this represents to me what i've been talking about a lot on this show which is there's a particular subset of the right that's pretty large um that honestly makes up their own reality completely they make up their own reality and regardless of its uh you know, relevance to actual reality, they want to believe in the one that they've depicted more than anything. So it doesn't matter what facts you pose. It doesn't matter, uh, matter what empirical evidence you provide them. It, they would prefer to believe in the reality that they've depicted for themselves and that the leaders they follow have depicted for them. And so she clearly picks up on that, Harriet Hagman, and realizes I can say whatever I want whenever it's beneficial to me. Facts don't matter. I get to create the reality that I and my followers live in, and that will be the most politically beneficial because we've already hit the we don't care about facts button. So from there, you pretty much have free reign on what you do. Again, in any other world, there would be no incentive to just randomly make a lie that is relatively small. It's blatant, but it's lying about something that's not big or important or anything like that. The concession call, I don't, who cares about that? Um, as long as she actually conceded, it's bad when you don't concede, but as long as you concede, I don't really care how polite the call was. Um, and so the fact that she would lie about that on national television just to get very easily exposed by Liz Cheney right afterwards is pretty wild. And it does reveal to me how, how much, um, ease in which these individuals lie about whatever they want. Dan Crenshaw kind of called out 
Do you want to say that? Called out uh, Tucker Carlson about his hypocrisy in regard to the Afghanistan withdrawal. So I have a moment from a podcast to show you. But it's a fascinating dynamic because what Dan Crenshaw is saying about what he believes is contradictory to what I believe. So I disagree with him. But then what he's saying about the hypocrisy of Tucker Carlson is correct. And it's very interesting. So you'll see here, he's kind of breaking down the isolationist versus non-isolationist divide within our country, which if you don't know, isolationists at its purest is um, the United States and its military shouldn't be getting involved in world affairs at all. We shouldn't be going in other countries and doing things. And of course, a non-isolationist view is more willing to deploy the military to do things, have bases across the world and stuff like that. <clears throat> if you ask me my own opinion, I have to go on a case-by-case basis because um, I think we can all, not all, I think a lot of people can recognize, oh wait, I'm not fully isolationist because an example is World War II. Do you think we should have gotten the United States military involved um, in a war in World War II? Um, and obviously my, my answer would be yes. And a lot of people too think we should have gotten involved earlier, even before Japan kind of got offensive with us. Um, and so that's a line for a lot of people. Okay. If it's that bad, then yes. Where does the line get drawn before that? And to me, it's taken at a case by case basis, but also we have to be much more strict with following international laws, with respecting other countries' sovereignty, with um, you know, respecting human rights. And that's where we faltered so bad. So us being involved across the world, for example, we're giving a lot of military resources to Ukraine. I love it. We're also not violating, um, you know, international law. And in other cases, we have violated international law. And that's why, um, I was against things like the war in Iraq and, and stuff like that. And was proud of Biden for pulling us out of Afghanistan. So we'll watch this. Um, Dan Crenshaw is different than me where, he is much more willing to be involved and he thinks we shouldn't have pulled out of Afghanistan. So we'll talk about that as the clip goes on, but here is this moment of him eventually calling out Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson's hypocrisy because Tucker Carlson pretends to be somewhat isolationist and get, you know, the military out of everywhere, but then criticized Biden a bunch for pulling out of Afghanistan. To expand on your your point earlier about how we never wanted to go back to this, right? Post-World War II, we never wanted to go back to the situation where we we had to expend a massive amount of resources, um, taking island after island after island again and, and letting it happen. There's an, there's an interest in preventing it at the beginning when the costs are lower. Um, and, and I also, I just always refute this argument that we're starting a war. Again, the isolationists were wrong about Russia. They've been wrong. They were wrong about Afghanistan. They said that if we just left, then there would be peace. Well, that's not what happened. We lost. So I don't know who he's referring to, but as far as my, stance i never believed pulling out of afghanistan was going to make peace in afghanistan um it more has to do with what is our obligation as another country as the united states of america in um affairs within other countries and sometimes they are you know things that we should be involved in uh based on the needs of the country and their willingness to have us there and all those types of things an example is ukraine wants us to be supportive to them obviously. Um, but I do think when you're talking about generally, for example, the Taliban revoking so many of women's rights right now and just making it so much more oppressive in Afghanistan than it was for the last few years, um, that is horrible. And I, I hope so much for that to go in the other direction at some point. But 
is it the United States' obligation to military, militarily occupy countries um, whenever they have those types of issues going on, whenever people are being treated poorly? And if so, why aren't we doing that in all of the countries that have those bad views on women, for example? Um, and that's where you get to, okay, out of principle, it's not the United States' obligation to go military, militarily occupy countries whenever they have bad um, what we would consider to be, but obviously bad views or bad um, laws or treatment of people within their society. Um, and that's where international law matters, because then whenever there's a huge violation of human rights, there can be a global effort to prevent that. Um, but if we just willy-nilly do it on our own, you get into really uh, sticky territory. Lost 13 Marines. It, it, nothing made me angrier than watching Tucker Carlson have the nerve to even criticize Joe Biden because Joe Biden did exactly what Tucker Carlson wanted him to do. Exactly. To the T. Pull out everybody right now. You know, no ifs, ands, or buts. No middle ground whatsoever. Not even Trump was, I, I think, thinking of doing that. You know, it would have at least left people in Brock Bagram. Um, they've been wrong on every front and it's, it's, it's getting dangerous. So he's absolutely correct about Tucker Carlson's hypocrisy because Tucker Carlson for a long time said, I'm against the endless wars and, um, we should pull out of Afghanistan. And that's one of the reasons that Trump was good in a lot of these people's eyes. And then Biden does that and it's a horrible thing. Now, of course, they say it's because the way that Biden did it. But I do think you have to recognize when pulling out of a 20 year war, leaving a massive power vacuum, um, it was gonna be bad. It was gonna be, um, damaging and we were gonna see a scene like we saw. Now, particular instances, like he talked about the Marines, you hope for a situation where we could have prevented that. And I'm sure you could conceive of one, but at a more 30,000 foot view, there was going to be a very messy withdrawal um, from a country that we had been so long and we had worked so much on our end to uphold the government that they had. So the second that we left, there was going to be a massive um, kind of brawl for, for that power and cause a lot of the scenes that we saw. And so I think recognizing it's a net good that we ended the war um, and that we pulled out of Afghanistan is important. And a lot of the people on the right don't do that. And all they talk about is the way in which it happened, the way it wasn't uh, perfect or peaceful or any of those things. So interesting moment where I disagree with Dan Crenshaw on if we should have pulled out of Afghanistan, but I agree with his take on Tucker Carlson's hypocrisy. Alex Jones has fully turned his view on Trump and is pro DeSantis. He is a DeSantis man now. So why is this interesting to me? We'll watch a clip of him explaining this in a second, but um, I think Alex Jones represents the far, you know, kind of conspiracy theorist right, which is a very powerful portion and, and more prominent portion than we'd probably like to admit of our country right now. And so seeing him move on these issues is an indication of where that part of the country is going as well. Um, and I think we are seeing a lot of people who are very radical and they got inspired and brought into politics by Trump wanting somebody else and a little sick of Trump on certain issues. He brings up the, the vaccine issue, which I do think turned some people off to Trump, which is funny because, you know, in my mind, that's one of the rare good things that Trump did was investing in um, the vaccine, but he made some enemies within his own 
uh, base because of that. And then also he is seen now as just so politically damaged. And you have all of the Jan 6 stuff as well as um, the raid that just happened by the FBI, um, not to mention the business investigations going on and all of these things, <clears throat> all the investigations into the overturn, uh, overturning of the 2020 election, of course. And so I think people want someone who's less damaged, who they see as more uh, powerful, who could be more effective, but is still just as radical. So right now the person is Ron DeSantis, and that's who Alex Jones gets behind in this clip. Pig-headedly support him. Right now he's referring to how he used to support Trump. A few years ago, even though I disagreed with his warp speed, because I thought that we had to keep him in office because of the nightmare scenario if Hillary... Now, to be clear, he said, I supported him even though I disagree with his warp speed. It's always a funny moment when you have to put this in with, put a thought within the context of their ideology. Just to be clear, he's saying that, you know, he's one of the people who thought there's all sorts of things in the vaccine, bots or something. I don't know his particular conspiracy, but he definitely thought they were trying to inject us with something crazy that was going to be um, more than just a vaccine, you know? So he's he's saying, I was willing to support someone who I knew was investing in developing a vaccine that was meant to control all humans, but I still liked him because of other stuff. It's such a weird thing. Of course, understanding that's not what the uh, vaccine was makes you willing to to give Trump credit for it, but him being willing to oversee it um, or look past it with the views he has, is kind of weird. Or Biden got in back before they were officially running. But that said, I am supporting DeSantis. DeSantis is just gone from being awesome to being unbelievably good. And I don't just watch a man's actions, as Christ said, judge a tree by his fruits. I can also look in his eyes on HD video and I see the real sincerity. He sees the real sincerity in Ron DeSantis. I will say if you are a moderate Republican <clears throat> and for some reason at this point, you still think that Ron DeSantis is maybe somewhat more reasonable just because he, you know, talks more like a politician compared to Trump. I would encourage you to think about if you feel comfortable being Someone who supports the same guy who Alex Jones thinks is incredible. It's a warning sign. If Alex Jones thinks Trump isn't radical enough and he likes DeSantis a lot, thinking he's incredible, I would just think about that if you're a moderate Republican. Because I've heard some moderate Republicans who were anti-Trump go, oh, but DeSantis seems like he could be okay. And I'm like, no, what? Oh, we're going to get another radical person in there. So irritating. Um, but... First, I want to say, why is anyone still listening to Alex Jones? I don't know. He went on stand and admitted to spreading lies for years and now understanding that all the stuff he said about Sandy Hook wasn't true, or not all the stuff, but all of the conspiracy type stuff he said about Sandy Hook was not true, that Sandy Hook actually happened. When you see that as an audience member of Alex Jones, does that not make, make you question, oh my gosh, if for years... He was lying so blatantly about something that did so many, so much damage to these families that they were able to get a lot of money out of Alex Jones, rightfully so. What else could he be not, you know, journalistically rigid about, we'll say. And no, they don't question that. He still has a humongous audience and they are coming to him for guidance on who to support. And right now that's DeSantis. Why they're coming to him for guidance, I have no clue. It makes no sense to me. 
after everything we've seen um, with his lawsuit. And then the second part is just, I do think this is kind of foreshadowing where the most radical part of the right goes lately seems to be where the rest of it follows, um, that Trump's going to be in the rearview mirror pretty soon, which in a way is good, right? We're excited to say bye-bye to Trump as far as politics goes. Um, but if they really effectively unify behind DeSantis, it's going to put us in a tough situation in 2024. Because I do think DeSantis could put up a pretty good campaign against a Democrat, especially considering um, the lack of kind of a Democratic star that we have right now. So that's a scary thought as well. Um, my most ideal thought is Trump tries to run and take some of that percentage of the uh, base and then clashes with DeSantis a lot in the primaries and makes a bunch of Republican voters not passionate to vote for whoever ends up getting the nominee nomination um, and helps the Democrats win. But uh, maybe they'll all unite behind DeSantis before then. I don't know. We'll see. Either way, <laughs> it's going to be bad or bad, bad or worse. And you can tell me which one is which. Carl Palladino is running for Congress coming out of the state of New York. And he is just one of the most wild, far-right, Republican candidates I've seen in a long time. So he's in hot water recently for something, but he has kind of a pattern of getting in hot water for stuff like this. So he called for the execution of, uh, of Merrick Garland or said, possibly that should happen. And of course, then he tried to play it off like once he got pressed on it, I was being facetious, but we'll, we'll show you the moment and you can judge. But when preparing for this story, I came across all of the other wild things he said and I'll kind of give you that as context for the main part of this story. So first, he thinks we need an inspirational leader like, wait, yes, Hitler. Hitler. Hmm. When thinking about which leader you should compare uh, to or, or compare who we need in this moment to, saying that we need an inspirational leader like Hitler is not where I would go to. Let's listen from him. I was thinking the other day about uh, somebody had mentioned on the radio uh, Adolf Hitler and, and, and how he aroused the crowds. I mean, he'd get up there screaming these epithets, and, and, and these people were just, they, they were hypnotized by him. Uh, that's, I, guess, I guess that's the kind of uh, uh, leader we need today. We need somebody inspirational. We need somebody that, that, that is a doer, has been there and done it. That's the kind of leader we need today, says Carl Palladino. Now, this man is not just some random person running who has no chance. This man got the endorsement of the third most powerful Republican in the House of Representatives, Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik endorsed him. What are we talking about? She's the third leadership position, the third most powerful leadership position in the Republican Party in the House, and she endorsed him. Um, we're we're going to show you more in a second here, but there are so many people you can cite when saying we need an inspirational leader. A very easy one that people love to quote all the time, and you know Republicans think that it applies to their ideology, Democrats think it, uh, this person applies to their ideology. Just say Martin Luther King, an inspirational leader. Don't have to go to Hitler. People were very aroused and inspired by many speakers throughout history. And so to me, it's not what he's saying with the fact by itself that I have an issue with. Because 
did Hitler like draw big crowds and get big cheers and whatever? Sure. That's not what I'm taking issue with. It's the decision to invoke Hitler when making that point, right? So if you're doing like an analysis of Hitler, it would be perfectly fine to say he inspired the crowds that were in front of him, right? Or he aroused the crowds. That would be fine. Or he was a, a good rhetorical, um, you know, delivered rhetorically very effectively. Sure. Um, and use that, of course, to do mass devastation. But you deciding when Hitler wasn't a part of the conversation already to bring him into it, to make a point that you can make separately tells me about where your mind's at. When you think of what type of leader we need, you think Hitler, um, based on his inspirational vibe. No. I think you make a conscious choice to, to do that and you know why you're doing it. I, I really do believe that. Um, you don't accidentally invoke Hitler and go, no, wait, wait, I was just trying to make a different point. Ah, wait. No, 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 you know what you're doing. Okay. And then he also said, uh, that Michelle Obama should return to being a male. There's a conspiracy on the right that on the far, far conspiracy, right? Um, that Michelle Obama was once a, a man. And he also said she should, this is, mm, um, let loose in the outback of Zimbabwe and compared her to a gorilla. So racist as well. Uh, and again, this is not me saying, oh, let's go find one tiny little thing in his past that he accidentally said in the, no. This is a long line of him showing the hate he has in his heart um, and the racism that's in his heart. And if y'all know me, I don't throw around the word racist a lot. I know um, the conception from conservatives is that, is that liberals kind of just call everyone racist. So because of that, I make a concerted effort not to do that. And only when it's very obvious and very blatant. And comparing a black woman to a gorilla is very blatant and very obvious. Um, and I think that's a fair place to call somebody racist. Can we all agree on that? Um, usually I'll just explain what they said and explain why it's a racist without just being like, they're a racist. But I feel like in this case scenario, he's racist. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, with that. that brings us to the current moment. What, what is he in hot water for now? Well, he said that Garland not only needs to be impeached, but probably executed. And then when he's pressed on it, he says he was being facetious. But in the moment we're in, where FBI agents, their families, judges' families are all being harassed um, and violently threatened and uh, even members trying to take violent actions towards them because of the lies being spread based on uh, the raid of Mar-a-Lago, saying this, even if you want to pretend later that you weren't being serious, is absolutely dangerous and you should be held accountable for it, um, at least in the public public's eye. So let's take a look at that. An administration of, of people like Garland, okay, who should be not only impeached, he should probably should be executed. The guy, the guy is just lost. He's a lost soul. Uh, he's trying to, to get an image and, and his image is his method out. Okay. So then he goes on. He should probably be executed. Now, again, when pressed on it, he said that he was being facetious, but the tone of his voice was not obvious. If you're going to make a killing somebody joke, you got to make it excuse me, really obvious in the moment that that's what you're doing. Like, be belly laughing while you're saying it. And still, I don't think you should do that. Especially 
again, within the context of all of the violent threats we're seeing go towards uh, people like Merrick Garland, the judge who signed off on the warrant, the FBI agents, etc. There is violent ambitions within the movement that this guy wants to lead. And so him evoking that language is, in my mind, purposeful. And he knows what he's doing. He knows it'll hype up um, his listeners. And then later, if he gets in any trouble, he can pretend he wasn't being serious. So, wow. This guy, endorsed by one of the most powerful Republicans in the House, is a complete nut, a complete Looney Tunes person, and should not be in Congress. I think we all should be able to agree on that.